You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Coletti. I'm the producer and host for today's show, which is being recorded on location during the ABA Mid-Year Meeting at the George R. Brown Convention Center in downtown Houston, Texas. Joining me now is Judge David Waxy. He's from Kansas City, Kansas, and I'm going to let him tell us a little bit about himself. Well, I'm a federal magistrate judge at the Robert J. Dole Courthouse in Kansas City, Kansas. I've been a judge for 16 years after having practiced law in Kansas for about 30 years. I am currently the chair of the Judicial Division of the American Bar Association, and the Judicial Division is composed of about six conferences. The conferences include the appellate judges, the federal trial judges, the state trial judges, the specialized court judges, and lawyers conference. It's very weird. We're the judicial division, but lawyers can be members if they like. Okay. Now, I'm curious. uh, Now, that you're not letting the lawyers tell the judges what to do, right? They all have a vote. Well, as a division chair, what are your primary responsibilities? Well, other than the normal managing meetings kind of stuff, as the chair, you get to select a project to work on for your year as chair. And the project we're working on this year is forensic science and the criminal justice system. Interesting. And the starting point of this was the American Academy of Sciences report that came out about five years ago. This was a congressionally funded study to determine the status of forensic science and the criminal justice system. And the conclusions are really unbelievable. And what's more unbelievable is most lawyers and judges haven't paid any attention to the conclusions. But the conclusions are that other than the use of DNA in the criminal justice system, all of the other so-called forensic sciences are probably not valid and should not be used the way they are used. And when you start looking at what that includes, it's things like ballistics and footprints and handwriting and blood splatters and fingerprints and all these things. When you look at the standards for the admission of scientific evidence, they don't meet it. And people not only are going to jail or prison for long periods of time based on bad science, there have been at least one clearly documented case of the execution of an innocent person based on bad science. And it's a very important issue that has not gotten enough attention. So we're going to try, starting with a meeting on Saturday, where we're bringing in some of the national experts to talk about what can the ABA do to try and improve this situation. Our tentative starting point is the idea that there's not enough judicial education because the mistakes are that judges are allowing this to go on without having the standards be met that should be met. So I guess you could say that we're kind of a CSI culture and everybody flocks to some of these uh, smoking gun scientific evidence points. And as a member of the judiciary, how is the judiciary dealing with that kind of evidence? I mean, it seems very strong. It seems like something that would attract the jury to find guilty, as you're saying. Some people over convictions. So what countermeasures can possibly be implemented to avoid uh, over conviction and the over-reliance on, as you say, this this type of scientific uh, forensics? Well, the structure is already there in the system to avoid this because the rules of evidence provide that you cannot use 
scientific or technologically based evidence unless it meets certain standards. And the standards came from the United States Supreme Court in the Daubert decision. They've then been codified by most states and the federal rules of evidence. They, in essence, require that the person who's testifying as an expert on this subject has to be qualified. The statements they are making have to be valid and verifiable in the normal scientific method. And you've got to be honest and not do as so many experts do, which is testify with certainty this is what happened or this is who did it, because the science does not support that kind of conclusion. And so the problem really is the rules are there. They're not being raised enough by lawyers, and judges, even when they're raised, have been ignoring them to some extent. So when your project with this is concluded, what type of measures are you looking to? Is it education-based? Well, that's going to be our narrow role at this point, because what's happened in addition to this report is the Department of Justice set up its own mechanism to try and follow up on the report. And the piece the ABA is probably going to end up focusing on will be judicial education. Because, as I said earlier, if the judges would simply follow the rules that already exist, we wouldn't have most of these problems. It's, and when you look at the problems it's caused, you know, I mentioned earlier that DNA is the only science that really has been accepted as being valid. And what DNA has resulted in is the Innocence Project that Barry Sheck runs has now up to like 350-some exonerations based on DNA evidence. And one of their participants has done a book that's been out a couple of years looking at the first 250 exonerations to see, well, if they weren't guilty, how did they get convicted? The largest number of wrongful convictions are a result of bad eyewitness testimony. And the science comes back into that because there's plenty of research showing how terrible human beings are at identifying other human beings. And the research goes on to point out that if you're trying to do it cross-racial, if a black person's trying to identify a white person, they're unbelievably bad, much worse than in the same racial group. And some lawyers have been aware of this research And the problem with the judges come up when they ask to present this expert testimony about why the jury should be careful about eyewitness testimony. The judges too often have said, no, we're not going to allow that. Juries can determine whether somebody's properly identified someone. And yet, go back to these exonerations, the largest percentage were cases where witnesses just got the wrong person. And the DNA confirmed it because you got to remember in a lot of these exonerations with the DNA evidence, they were to go back and find the person who'd actually committed the crime. And in a lot of cases, the person who'd committed it confessed. So that's the first reason for the bad convictions. The second directly relates to forensic science in that it's bad forensic science testimony. And for example, that case I mentioned with the wrongful execution. It was one involving a prosecution for a house fire that the state of Texas said was intentionally caused by the father to kill his children. He said he had not done this and that it was an accidental fire. 
at the start of the proceedings, he had appointed counsel who didn't do what should have been done. So the guy not only got convicted based on the testimony of a so-called arson expert, which was a local fire official who had developed the ability, he said, to determine whether a fire was intentionally or accidentally set. He said it was intentional. The guy was the only one with access, so they not only convicted him, they sentenced him to death. Wow. He then went through the appeal process and had no success. The Innocence Project got in the case after his appeals had been exhausted and the clemency petition was pending before Governor Perry. And they, the Innocence Project put together a group of scientists who re-examined the evidence and said there is no doubt this was an accidental fire, here's how it started. Governor Perry's response was, Texas juries don't make mistakes, clemency's denied, and they executed the guy. So the next step the Innocence Project took was to put a more powerful group together to look at the evidence because they thought they had a case they could show that an innocent person had been executed. Governor Perry heard about this and said, well, we'll show you, we'll get our own group together and verify that this was done correctly. The word, he did then put together a pretty good group of scientists. The word got back to him, though, that his group was about to say it was an accidental fire, so he disbanded the group. And he said, you know, we don't make mistakes, but even if the science is bad, we had informant testimony that said the defendant had confessed while in jail. Just within the last couple months, because this execution was several years ago, within the last couple months, the person who had testified about the defendant's confession was released from prison, and he promptly recanted his testimony and said, the guy never confessed to me. The government offered me a deal on my sentence if I would say he testified against me. And it turns out they... The government had never disclosed this deal with this witness, which is a Brady violation, which would have resulted in a new trial, at least, if that had come forward. So it's pretty well documented. This guy was executed for a crime he didn't commit. Wow, that's pretty sobering. It just uh, it highlights the need for us to make sure that all of our mechanisms of justice are working correctly. And actually, that kind of leads me into my next question. I know we briefly talked on it, but uh, you have a very interesting leadership structure within the uh, judicial uh, division, and, and you have these and it's six, is it committees, commissions? Conferences. Conferences, six conferences. And so let, let's walk through those a little bit. Tell me about each one and maybe just a brief description of it, and we can maybe uh, develop the discussion from there. Okay. First one I'll discuss is the Appellate Judges Conference, and it's an interesting conference because it includes both federal and state appellate judges. The next one is the Federal Trial Judges Conference, which includes only federal judges. The next is the State Trial Judge Conference, which does just state judges. Then we have the Specialized Court Conference, which does things like municipal courts and tribal courts, things like that. And then the next one is the Administrative Law Judiciary. And then the final one is the Lawyers Conference, which are lawyers that want to be involved in the judicial division. So those are the six conferences. Each of those conferences has a chair and an executive committee. So they do their own programs and policies that then have to be approved by the judicial division. 
Okay, and it, you're obviously at the top of the uh, the judicial division, and so you get to make decisions for them and, and tell them, uh, kind of limit uh, some of the projects they're working on, or how does that... Well, the judicial division has a council made up of all the chairs of the conferences and the officers of the judicial division, and it's that council that's the actual authority in terms of what the division does. Okay. As the chair, I just manage the meetings and make proposals. Okay. Since you took the Ranger tenor, what have been some of the best ideas that have come out of all of the uh, all the different conferences working together? Well, there are a large number of them that's constantly changing and ongoing. One of them that we're still working on that came up a couple of years ago has to do with perceptions of bias and the problem of people being biased either as a judiciary or as a juror and not recognizing their own bias. So that one's ongoing with trying to educate judges. Another one has been to try and promote diversity within the judiciary. And that's why we're one of the co-sponsors of this law clerk program that just met or is meeting right now, where we bring in diverse law students from around the country and try and give them better education on what a judicial clerkship would be like because judicial clerkships are often the stepping stone to much better jobs than just starting right out of law school. And since this is the ABA mid-year meeting and most of the members are attorneys, and since you have attorneys as part of your division, what are the best reasons to be joining up, being involved with the judicial division? Part of it would be the educational programs we do. Not only do live programs, we do webcasts and podcasts and lots of written materials, all in an effort to follow up on our goals, which one is to promote public trust and confidence in the judiciary, and two, to make sure that the judiciary is a diverse organization. So those are all programs that we think help in that direction. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I wanted to uh, ask you if our listeners wanted to follow up, since this is going to be broadcast to our audience, which are mostly attorneys and other legal professionals, how can they get a hold of you and ask more about the judicial division within the ABA? The simplest is to go to the judicial division website within the ABA website, which has all of our contact information and all of the descriptions of projects I've just tried to discuss. Fantastic. Well, this has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.